0: As we come to celebrate the resurrection, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. You can, you can find that in the Bible that's there in front of you on page, at the very bottom of page 1097, page 1097. we am going to begin reading at verse 16 of Acts 17. This is the story of the church on a mission. And we've seen in, in these recent weeks that the, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is the vital heartbeat of the church's message and mission. Without the resurrection, Christianity is destroyed. And so we find here the Apostle Paul, a man who previously had done everything he could to destroy the church, a man radically changed by the truth of the resurrection, now preaching the gospel in an unlikely setting among the philosophical elites, among the scholarly elites, among those with legal power and authority in Athens that great ancient city. So listen as I read Acts 17, I'm going to begin at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truths that are proclaimed to us today. Lord, we want to be people who are seeking after you, and I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us, having heard your word, that you would now apply it to our hearts as we, as we listen to the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity as I speak, but that your spirit would be powerfully at work, convicting us of our sin, reminding us of that day of judgment, helping us to repent, to turn from our sins, and put our trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would be central to our thinking today, be central to our actions as as we've been transformed by the work of our Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. What's the most terrifying audience you can imagine speaking in front of? Now, for some of you, it's any audience. You don't want to be up in front of of any group of people. Maybe it's a a public presentation you have upcoming at work. Or maybe the launch of a business, a presentation you have to make, a a product launch, and your whole future depends on this moment. Or maybe some of you would fear walking down the hallway after the service and teaching a group of children, staring those little faces, having those little faces stare back at you. Maybe you would fear standing up in front of a political demonstration, and an angry scene perhaps that could turn against you. Or maybe you would fear having to stand and plead for your life before a judge who could decide your fate. The Apostle Paul here in Athens proclaims what, what the scriptures tell us is the good news about Jesus and the resurrection to the educational philosophical and legal scholars of Athens. Yes, that Athens. That Athens which for hundreds of years has been the center of the scholarly universe. It's Oxford and Harvard and Cambridge all wrapped into one with, with centuries of history. The Athens where Plato and Aristotle stood and taught. And Paul is being brought before this this official Areopagus, this official council, the, the philosoph- they it, it's, it's more than a philosophy debate. These are the men who could control the, the educational policies of the cities, who could control the legal outcome of all that would take place. And now Paul goes to this skeptical crowd, a, a crowd that, that we notice, the scriptures recognize their arrogance. Look at verse 22, or verse 21, the description that, that all the Athenians do is sit around talking about the latest ideas because that's what you do in Athens. This is where the smartest people come to succeed. Even if you've had great philosophical success somewhere else, you, you haven't proven anything until you've done it in Athens. And so Paul is bringing an unpopular teaching, good news about Jesus and the resurrection, a dead man is now alive again that's his central claim to the smartest people walking around he makes claims about about them those that listen to him and their their position and standing before god he warns them of a coming judgment that jesus is the judge of all but but we notice Here, in Paul's ministry in Athens, that the good news about Jesus and the resurrection confronts everyone. Every one of us has to be confronted with this truth. And one day, even if you can brush it aside today, one day you will come face to face with the reality of the resurrection. The coming day of judgment of which which the apostle warns. Now, we see Paul, Paul's ministry strategy. He's actually, verse 16, we're told, while he's waiting for them in Athens. See, the last town he had been in, things didn't go so well. So they had to get him out of the city very quickly. And so his traveling companions haven't caught up yet. And so he's there waiting. This isn't part of the plan. This wasn't on the the gospel itinerary when they mapped out their their course. This wasn't the place they were going to come. Yes, Athens is the, is the great pinnacle of, edu- of education in, in this part of the world, but it's not even the most important city in this part of the world. You've got to just travel across the peninsula to Corinth to find the center of power and commerce and pleasure. And so he's, he's merely waiting here. But what does a Christian do while waiting? A Christian looks for opportunities to proclaim good news about Jesus. And, the resurrection. and so that's what he does. Verse 17 tells us that he follows his, his ordinary pattern. He goes into a synagogue. He reasons with the Jews, with the God-fearers that are gathered there. See, these are the people that are waiting for this announcement. The people of the, the Old Testament waiting for the, the coming Messiah, the, the judge who would, who would declare whether you have right standing with God. And so that's where he begins. But notice in verse 17 he doesn't stay merely among those waiting for this kind of news. Where does he go? Into the marketplace, day by day. And who's he speaking with? Whoever stumbles past him. See, because for Paul, everyone, everyone needs to hear good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so here in the marketplace, the the Epicurean, the Stoic philosophers begin to dispute with him. Look at what they call him in verse 18. What is this babbler trying to say? The, 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 the literal phrase is, what is this seed picker? It's like he's, he's this little scavenger of a bird just going around picking up little pieces of nonsense. There, there's, there's, there's no consistency to what this man says. He doesn't come with the philosophies of Plato or Aristotle or, or Zeno or Epicti- Epictetus. He's just coming like a, a babbler, a, a man merely picking it at, at random truths. It sounds to them like nonsense. And why? It's, it's the central message in verse 18. They said this. He sounds like not speaking nonsense because he's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The good news about Jesus and the resurrection confronts everyone. Now, Now, I know, culturally, we're much more comfortable with keeping these kinds of conversations private. Even even private in this kind of context, as long as you keep it inside the church i mean it 's like the it 's like the the character Hobbes from the comic strips Calvin and Hobbes I mean Hobbes is that lovable, mischievous tiger, but what is he when everyone else is around that 's when he 's with Calvin, the boy who loves him what is he with he 's He's a stuffed animal that you drag along. See, you and I are okay as long as Christianity is this lifeless thing that you see me dragging along behind me. But if I if I if I pretend that it's real, that it's life-changing, you look at me like a, a child who should be dismissed. Yes, maybe a child who should be chuckled at for some of his antics in the comic strip, but but you don't want to take it seriously. See, we're okay with the claims of Christianity culturally, as long as they're kept private. In your own life, in your own church. But but not out among the people. But for Paul, the gospel can't be kept hidden. It's, it's a message, yes, for inside the worshiping community in the synagogue, but it's a message also for the marketplace. It's a message for, for the philosophers. It's a message for the businessmen. It's a message for everyone. And don't you see that actually when, when you tell me that I should keep it private, you, you're, not even, you're not even taking seriously what I'm trying to say to you. I'm telling you, this isn't something that can be kept private. This is good news about Jesus and the resurrection, and it should change everything for everyone. And so to, so to try and shove it aside as, as just keep it private isn't really to, to be honest about this message. But I, but I do recognize, just like the people in Athens, the, the story? The historical account of a dead man coming to life is hard to believe. No, it's dangerous when you when you when you run into a preacher on a Saturday night, because I've got a message ready to go. And so so I was I was uh, checking out at a store and in this retail setting and, and buying some last minute things and and the the young man the student a college student asked me, "Well, what's all this for?" I said, "Well, it's it's for Easter." And then he. He looked at me and he said, can I, can I ask you a question? In God's providence, there's nobody else waiting in line. And he says, what's Easter? Which, which is an, I, I told him, that's an outstanding question. It is the central message of the Christian faith. And I told him the story of, of Jesus, the son of God, coming and dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I asked a friend about that. And that's what he told me but I thought he was joking because that sounds unbelievable. Do you see, that's an honest response to the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. Wait, what? I actually assume that you must be joking with me, that you think you, you want me to, to believe that kind of message? That's the honest response. See, for if, if you've been raised in the church or even you're just here for the pattern of, if you're here, it's Easter. It's, of course, it's the day of the resurrection. That's an unbelievable story unless, unless it really happened. And you and I, when we encounter this message, it, it shouldn't surprise us that the, the people of Athens can't believe it. Because you and I struggle to believe it. The good news about Jesus and the resurrection confronts every one of us. And Paul's speech here confronts us with who we are and with who God is. Notice how, how the apostle begins this speech, this sermon here in the Areopagus, this official meeting of the, of the philosophical leaders of Athens. In verse 22, he, he greets them and he says, I see that in every way you are very religious. And then he gives them the evidence. I've, I've walked around the city, and, and you could go and visit Athens, and you'll still see glimpses of this, of the temples and the structures and the monuments and the altars. And he says, you, you were so careful that you didn't leave out any of the gods that you even have an altar to unknown gods. Well, this unknown god, I'm, I'm going to proclaim to you. Because remember, Athens is, the, is at the center of, of what was the, the great empire of Greece. They had conquered all of the gods of the foreign lands, extended, extended the empire to the very edges. They've, they've heard it all, and yet Paul's bringing them something new. But he, he, he acknowledges, looking around, you were looking for something. You are religious people. And remember the the two groups of people that we've been introduced to back in verse 18, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Now, these are the kinds of philosophers that you're introduced to in those college courses, like your philosophy 101 classes. And you, you write that, you scribble down an answer for a quiz, and then you forget what they said. Because how many people have you met in the last couple of weeks that have introduced themselves to you as an Epicurean or a Stoic philosopher? Now, the Epicureans, they they believed that that life was meant to be this balance between pain and pleasure, and so they were seeking after pleasure, but not not pure, unadulterated hedonists saying, let me be as happy as I can be. No, life is meant to be this balance, and so you're working to avoid pain. But an Epicurean way of thinking excludes God. There is no God. Essentially, an Epicurean is what we might call an agnostic secularist. Somebody who's, well, you know, we don't even really need to worry about questions about God. We can do it on our own. A humanist saying what, what I think is most important. And so in ancient philosophy, well, one that we still find around us. Now, Stoics, that's a word you might actually use in your, in your everyday, you talk about someone being so Stoic. yes, yeah, somebody who's, gonna, who's going to grin and bear it, and, and that is central to a Stoic way of thinking where there, there's this emphasis on your self-sufficiency, your, your ability to sort of think through the problem and come up with your own solution. And so Stoics, they're indifferent to the, the pleasure that the Epicurean is chasing after. No, we don't, we don't need pleasure. Whether it's pleasure or pain, I can endure anything. And there's this vague sort of belief in God. Not really a personal God, but I'm not as a Stoic willing to condemn all belief in God. So. So you you might not know anyone who would call himself an Epicurean, or anyone who would would want to take on that label of of being a a Stoic, following after the philosophies of Zeno here in Athens. But you certainly know, and you're tempted to live looking for a life of pleasure without regard for belief in God. Do you know anyone that, in our culture looking for pleasure? Do you know anyone who, who in, in our culture is tempted toward a self-sufficient life? Really? We don't even need to talk about God. See these ancient philosophies are, are very modern, postmodern, even, in the way that they would have looked at the world. And so when Paul is confronting their idolatry, the fact that they were worshiping idols, he's, he's, not, really, he's not merely confronting the issue of having these physical statues in their city. No, he's, he's confronting their hearts. Because idolatry is the basic problem of our hearts. It's taking something good in the world, the pleasures that God has given us, and making that our, our ultimate purpose. Taking our, our rationality, the fact that I can think through things logically. That's a good gift that God has given to us. But saying, I am now the end all, be all, final decider of all things. See, idolatry is worshiping anyone or anything, rather than worshiping the true God. Secular novelist David Foster Wallace spoke, spoke a decade ago to a graduating class of college students. He describes himself as a secular humanist, meaning he doesn't believe in God. He believes in, in humanity fulfilling its own self-identified purpose. And so as a secular humanist, that probably puts him close to the Epicureans in, in philosophical outlook. He claims he's not speaking to these students about morality or religion, but he really can't help speaking about it because this humanist says this. It's a a profound statement of truth from from maybe someone that those of us inside the church might not expect to hear it, but this is what he says to the students. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, There's actually no such thing as atheism. So so an atheist telling them in your day to day life, there's really no such thing as practical atheism. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. See, he he has an insight there into the human heart, one that the Apostle Paul would have said, as your own poets, as your own novelists have said, there is no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships. Because we're made by God, we're meant for worship. But the choice is what, what will you worship? So what is it for you that's most important? Is it pleasure, avoiding pain, making life comfortable? if I can just get through the day, what is it that, that prompts your, your anger if, if it might be taken from you? Is it power? Is it your family? Your job? Success, as you would define it. Perhaps your health. What is it that's most important to you? Now, I, I heard an interesting quote this week from, from NBA superstar Kevin Durant. Now, I'm not normally one to quote NBA superstars, sometimes because I think they don't have the most profound things to say, but, but he was reflecting on the fact that he has been ejected. He's this, I mean, MVP caliber, superstar, perennial all-star, world champion on the defending championship team, but he has been ejected from more games this year than anybody in recent memory. And when asked about it, why, why are you getting ejected from these games? This is what he said. He said, it's just my emotions, it's my passion for the game. He says, after winning the championship last season, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought the championship would fill a certain void in my life. It didn't. And so that's when I realized that in the off-season, the only thing that matters is this game and how much you put into it. I don't care what other people say about me. Now, I don't want to take one quote from an after-practice NBA superstar and, and, and label him philosophically, but, but, I, but I think I think he's being honest here about the way our hearts work. If you had asked him a couple of years ago, as he was considering which team he should sign with, what is the most important thing? It's an NBA championship. I'll take less money, I'll do whatever, I'll be a team player as long as I can get that ring. The problem is when he slid on the ring, it changed nothing. That might not be your goal. Maybe it is. I mean, maybe the NBA championship still is your, your goal and your hope, that that's the thing that, Dad, there is no hope left for you. <laughs> that might be the thing that you're, you're hoping would change your life, but, but maybe it's success in a different way, but, but whatever it is, when you get it will, it, will it really be able to meet all the desires of your heart, or will you be left saying, I, I thought this would satisfy me, but it doesn't? See, we are a people that are inherently religious because we are made by God. We are those who will worship. The only choice we get is what we'll worship. And so Paul is showing the Athenians who they are, but he's then telling them who God is. He says in verse 24, or he tells them at the end of verse 23, the God you want to know, this unknown God, I am going to proclaim him to you. I will tell you what you're looking for. You are a person who's religious, you're longing for something, I'll tell you what you are longing for. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. That's a powerful claim. The the very one you're seeking after is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one you should worship. That's the kind of confrontational claim that philosophers don't like you to make. That's an all-or-nothing claim. The God who made everything the Lord with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the true God. And he doesn't live in temples built by, by human hands. He's not served like others were told in verse 25 or in, or in verse 29. We shouldn't think of the divine being like, like these, these objects of worship that we see in Athens. He's not made out of gold or silver. You, you can't physically describe the maker of heaven and earth. You can't capture him in a temple. You can't contain him in an image. Because God is not in any way dependent upon us. He's not served by us as if he's desperate and won't make it through the day without us. No, God is the all-sufficient, self-sufficient creator of heaven and earth. Everything that was made, God made. Every nation on earth, we're told, from one man, God made every nation. In verse 26... God is the one who determined the times set for them, the places they should live. God is the one who who orders all of history. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. Now, just like the Athenians, you and I are tempted to shrug this off as, uh, that sounds like the the way a babbler would talk about this. So you haven't sat in the the labs, the scientific places that I've been This isn't the... But but remember, this isn't the kind of thing that you can run a test on. You can't figure out on your own if there is a God who is there. And, And actually, an honest scientist will admit to you that the limits of science can't go beyond that. What do you actually need? You need someone to proclaim the truth to you. You need someone to announce it to you. You need someone who would bring a message from God himself. And Paul is the perhaps the the least likely person for this. His previous job on on his resume is destroyer of the church, murderer, kidnapper, destroyer of Christians. That was his previous occupation until he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We, We use that phrase even in our contemporary literature, a Damascus road experience. God radically changed Paul's life. And yes, Paul was educated, a, a, a man who was knowledgeable in these philosophical systems. So, in, in another sense, he's the perfect person to be sent to Athens, even sent unexpectedly to Athens. But he's the God who, who orders the, the, the places that nations are going to live. Of course, God can be in control of where he's going to leave Paul for a couple of days to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim it in the synagogue, in the marketplace, to proclaim it in the Areopagus. But Paul doesn't stop with the claim that God is the creator and sustainer. He presses further. He makes a, a much more harsh claim. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He's saying God has been patient with your false worship. But now he commands all people everywhere To repent. Again, Paul is not letting anyone wiggle out from under this command that comes to us from God. God commands it, God expects it of you. There is no other option available. Yes, you can reject it, but you will pay the penalty for rejecting it. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Look at verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There is a day of judgment. History has a final day when God will call every person everywhere to account for their life. And it is Jesus who has been appointed as judge over all. And what's the proof? How do we know this is true? Verse 31 tells us, God has given proof of this to all men. By raising Jesus from the dead. Now maybe you are coming in today hoping for a a hope-filled story of the resurrection. That because Jesus lives, you and I can live. That is absolutely true. That is the message of the resurrection. But it's actually terrifying before it becomes hopeful. Because the, the proof of God's judgment... God's power over sin and death, God's power over every single person. And now you can all see it because what has God done to prove his power? He raised Jesus from the dead. Now, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you must give an account. It's not something you can shrug off and say, oh, that's fine. That's fine for Calvin to drag around Hobbes all he wants and believe that it's true for him. No, God is saying, you have to decide. Is the resurrection something you believe? Apart from God actually doing it, apart from God announcing it to us, apart from God's word being proclaimed to us, this is something you and I would, would be able to set aside as, can't be true, that's unbelievable. Because from a human standpoint, it is. It's impossible, it couldn't be done. But with God, nothing is impossible. God has shown that he is the judge of all of history by raising Jesus from the dead. And so you are commanded to repent, to turn from your sin. It's a word that just means to turn around, to turn from your sin and turn and follow God, to stop trusting in yourself and to trust in God, to stop saying, I am self-sufficient and to say, I have no hope apart from Christ. That's what it means to repent. To believe in Jesus now I don't know if verse 31 was meant to be the end of Paul's sermon but it is because as soon as he gets back to this good news about Jesus and the resurrection this message that confronts everyone when they heard about it it, it sounds to me like they interrupted maybe there was more to come in this sermon, but they won't hear it. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. This is nonsense, they would think. See, there's, there's nobody in the ancient world, and there's, there really is nobody in the modern world, anticipating God intervening in history by raising a man from the dead. Whole philosophical systems, even modern, postmodern, contemporary systems of thinking say, that's just impossible. I couldn't believe it. Except that God has done it. He has given proof to all of us by raising Jesus from the dead. So what is your response? So you're given the opportunity. God has shown his patience by offering you an opportunity through the words of the apostle to repent and believe. See, there's coming a day when God himself will confront you, when Jesus himself, at your death or at the end of history, will confront you. So there's an opportunity today to believe, to say that that truth, which, which otherwise, under any other circumstances, would be nonsense, like a babbler talking. God raised Jesus from the dead? Yes. That's the truth that Paul proclaims. Now, some sneer and reject this. Others are curious. But if, if, if you're in that category of, of the category that's curious, don't just let your curiosity linger. Press into it. Look for an look for answer because, because there's a danger that your curiosity just keeps you at a distance of never having to make a decision. Where you just say, well, you know, I'll figure that out later. I'll, I'll get to that or I wouldn't know what questions to ask next. But to remain agnostic is to reject. To say I, I can't figure this out is, is to eventually say I don't believe it. Don't let your skepticism harden into cynicism where you reject this truth. Listen to the words of God. Hear this announcement of good news. Repent. Believe in Jesus. See, the promise here is the the plan of God. If you seek him, you will find him. He has made himself known through Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. See, the resurrection proves God is serious about sin and will bring judgment. But he's done that by putting the judgment you and I deserve on Christ. Do you believe it? The resurrection proves God's great love for us. The good news about Jesus and the resurrection confronts every one of us. Respond today with faith. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we are thankful that you called men in the the early church out of sin into your glorious light, that that you took a a persecutor of the church and made him a a preacher in your church. Lord, that he was bold and willing to stand and confront the, the smartest men of his day to teach the truth to men and women that they would respond by faith. So Lord, do that work in our hearts. Make us humble enough to admit our Our lack of self-sufficiency make us dependent upon you allow us to repent to turn from our sin and put our trust in jesus christ let this day of resurrection celebration be a day of real living hope for each one of us Lord, give us the faith to believe to know that jesus is the savior the one who took our punishment jesus is the king who reigns on high the one who gives us resurrection life and so lord we come Praying and rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.